Father, though this world is filled with devils, though Satan prowls like a roaring lion seeking to devour the faith of your people, we are confident that one little word will fell him. We are confident in the Christ who cast out demons with the word. We are confident in the Christ who calmed the storms with a word. We are confident in the Christ who healed and restored and cleansed with a mere word. Would you give us great confidence this morning in your word written for us? Written down so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing have life in him. Would you do what you intend to accomplish through your word? We are confident that your word does not return void, but accomplishes all of your purposes. And so this morning, as we come to this text in Matthew, would you help us? Would you help us hear the words of Jesus? Would you help us respond with faith and obedience? Would you form in us Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen, friends. Matthew 10, 16 to 11, 1 is our sermon text for this morning. This is the second half of Jesus' commissioning speech, sending out his disciples. We saw last week, the first part of chapter 10, as Jesus, in chapter 9, beholds the crowds and sees them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He is moved by compassion and he sends his disciples out to the lost sheep of Israel. And he sends them out with great authority. Remember, he called his disciples and gave them authority. He sends them out with great power. He tells them they can cast out demons. They can heal the sick. They can raise the dead. He sends them out with great provision. He tells them to live out the Sermon on the Mount, right? To live in light of their Father who knows what they need and cares for them more than the lilies of the field or the birds of the air. He says, don't take extra provisions for you. Rely on your Father. Give without receiving payment. He gives them authority even to declare peace upon a house or to withdraw peace from the house. There's great hope and anticipation as Jesus sends out his disciples. And if you put yourself in their shoes for a second, I think you'll see what they probably saw, which is great hope and anticipation of this mission. How on earth could they possibly be stopped if all these things are true as they're sent out? Right? They're going to go forward and they're going to triumph and it's going to be nothing but a triumphant march from here on till the end of time. And then Jesus gives them this in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's a little bit more discouraging sounding. And then he says things like, you'll be drugged before councils and before kings, and you'll be beaten. And then he says things like, even brothers will give over their brothers to death, or fathers their children. You may even be killed. This is a far cry from the kind of anticipation and eagerness that would have come out of them from the first 15 verses in Matthew 10, right? As Jesus starts explaining to them their mission, he then drops this on them. 
And I can't help but think that they're probably filled at this point with some disappointment and with some fear. There may be a sense, even in their own minds, of what have we gained by following Jesus. If we're just going to be killed, why does this matter? If we're just going to be beaten, where's the authority and the power that we're told we're given? It's authority and a power to proclaim the kingdom, but not to escape this kind of persecution. This puts on display for us one of the things we see throughout the New Testament. And that's the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of heaven. We'll see this again when we get to Matthew chapter 11. And Jesus says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what's he tell them to do? Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. How is rest equated with taking a yoke upon you? Or elsewhere, we see in the book of Philippians, for example, as we went through that a few years ago, that we are living on earth while also being citizens of heaven. There's this paradoxical nature of where do we actually belong? Where do we actually find home? And how do we live in light of that? Or even just think about Jesus himself. First Corinthians talks about what the wisdom of God is. And where is the wisdom of God found? In the cross, which is apparent foolishness, right? How could a Messiah who is going to rescue his people die on a shameful death on a cross? We see that paradox carried all the way through, even to Revelation. When Jesus is revealed, he's revealed as both a lion who has conquered. And then John says, and I saw one standing there as a lamb though slain. He is the conquering lion and the lamb that is slain. The kingdom of heaven is paradoxical in that even as Jesus' disciples are sent out with great power and great authority, they're also sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves who are going to experience persecution, who are going to be harassed. It's hard for us to think this way because we tend, I think, to think in one-dimensional terms. We tend to think that life with Jesus ought to be always rejoicing, all peace, always prosperity. We are told in many ways that come to Jesus and your life will be great. But we're not told the part that will be always rejoicing yet sorrowful like paul says he says he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing we're not told come to jesus and experience a deep and abiding peace and joy that will come hand in hand with intense suffering for the sake of the gospel it's hard for us to think this way but this is the reality of discipleship the disciples are still sheep and remember what Jesus said when he saw sheep in Matthew 9, 36. All right, I want to read that for us again. Jesus saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then notice he tells his disciples, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In other words, you will still be harassed. But there's one important, vital, crucial difference. You will be harassed. But you will not be helpless. You will be harassed, but you will not be left without a shepherd. Because the great shepherd has come. Jesus says, I've come to rescue my sheep. And if you are in me and I am sending you out, then you do not need to fear. We're going to see that as we unpack the text today. I want to use that to help us think about 
the three messages that Jesus has for his disciples and by extension for us. He wants his disciples to see, first of all, that you will be harassed. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do not be surprised that you encounter persecution. And then he wants his disciples to see, though you will be harassed, you are no longer helpless. Do not fear. Do not be anxious because you have great help in this shepherd. And then he wants his disciples to see and us to see because you will be harassed but are not helpless. Therefore, you can and you must endure on this mission. He wants to encourage his disciples not to give up. And he wants to call us not to give up as well. So with that in mind, we're going to read this text And then we're going to look at those three messages as we go through the text. Would you read with me Matthew 10, verses 16 to 11, 1. Jesus says this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple 
Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Amen. It's the word of God. The first thing I want us to see, first thing I believe Jesus wants us to see, wants his disciples and us to see, is that you will be harassed. Do not be surprised that you will be harassed. He tells his disciples, first of all, you're being sent into hostile territory. This is not a mission to the safe places of Jerusalem. This is a mission into the heart of enemy territory because you will be in the midst of wolves. Notice verse 16. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is a dangerous mission into hostile territory. Because of that, you will be hated. Notice he says in verse 21 and 22. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You're being sent into hostile territory and you will be hated. Why? He says, for my name's sake. For my namesake, what's happening is he is descending his disciples into enemy territory to do what we talked about last week, right? Proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand and embody that kingdom through how they live. And as they proclaim that the king is here, his kingdom has arrived. And as they live as people of that kingdom, what's going to happen? They're going to come into sharp contrast with those who love the kingdom of the world, right? Rebels do not like hearing that the king is here. And they're going to shoot the messenger. They're going to hate these disciples as they come out and proclaim this message and embody the true kingdom. You'll be sent into hostile territory. You'll be hated. You will suffer and even die. They describe that kind of suffering, right? In verse 17, Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. All we need to know to know that that happened is to read the book of Acts, right? Repeatedly, God's people are drugged into the synagogue, accused, questioned, beaten. The disciples even counted an honor that they're considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ after they were beaten and told not to preach anymore about Jesus. And we look at the apostle Paul. He's drugged before kings. And high councils and gives testimony even in Jerusalem. And he ultimately is killed. You will suffer and even die. As I was preparing for this, I was reading in uh, a story of a Muslim man who was converted to Christ. Came to, come, come, came to know Jesus as Savior. Came under the true king and under the true kingdom. And his wife then fed him food with glass in it and killed him. And that, that's just like one tiny little example of what it looks like to come to Christ in the midst of a hostile kingdom. Even here closer to home, we have cults like the Jehovah's Witness or Mormons, where if you come to Christ, you not only lose your religious identity, but you lose many cases family relations, right? It's not typical to kill someone because they come to Christ in the U.S., but it happens all around the world all the time. You will be hated, you will suffer, and you will die on this mission. 
Scripture teaches us constantly to expect this. Expect that this characterizes the mission of Christ as he sends us out on mission. Jesus even says in verse 23, right? When they persecute you. Not if, but when. Paul tells the churches as he goes around and and, and encourages them, right? In Acts 14. What does he tell them? Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the encouragement. Or as he's writing to Timothy, trying to bolster him up to persevere. What does he tell him? Everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Scripture promises that all those who are sent out on mission as disciples, and I'm not talking about just missionaries, I'm talking about all of us as disciples, will experience persecution. We will be harassed. So, in light of this, we ought to expect suffering for the sake of gospel mission. We ought to expect suffering for the sake of gospel mission. And this might seem like, well, obviously. But what do we expect out of life in America? We expect a good life. We expect peace. We expect prosperity. We expect freedom. We expect all the things that we think characterize a well-lived life. And we don't expect suffering. We don't expect persecution. We don't expect to suffer for the sake of the gospel. This flies directly contrary to everything our culture disciples us to expect out of life. Jesus tells his disciples, this is how it's going to be. And by extension, in his word, he is telling us, this is how it's going to be. You are going to suffer for the sake of the name. Not only that, but the suffering that we endure, Jesus himself sets the bar for, right? He talks about this in verses 24 and 25. We are identified with him in his household. If they do this to the master, how much more so the servants? What did they do to the master? They accused him wrongly. They beat him and they crucified him. This is the bar The standard for what the Christian life will look like. Accused, beaten, and crucified. Look at the life of Paul. Think about in 2 Corinthians. When Paul is arguing with the Corinthian church against the tendencies of these super apostles to say, look at how how poorly Paul does. I mean, he's beaten everywhere he goes. We're so much better than him, you ought to follow us. And Paul says, no, let me boast. Let me tell you what real boasting is. And he gives this long list, right? How many times he's been beaten. How many times he's been shipwrecked. As he constantly suffers cold and hunger for the sake of the gospel. And he says, this is what you ought to boast in. Because in this, the power of Christ is shown to be strong. It's in the weakness of the church that the power of Christ is shown to be strong. Are you better than Paul? Am I better than Paul? Do I have a right to expect better than he experienced? I would say the clear answer is no. Jesus sets the bar for what we ought to expect. I think it's important for us to think about how we ought to think about this in an American context. This is very different. Our experience of these ideas I think is very different in this context than it is in others. Because we don't really feel the weight of imminent expectation of being killed on behalf of our faith. Whereas in many other countries they do. 
I think, though, that we ought to think again about why the disciples suffered this kind of hatred and this kind of persecution. They suffered it because they're proclaiming and embodying the kingdom of heaven, right? They're saying there is a king and he is here and his kingdom is being established. And the call is repent and believe, repent and submit to this king and this kingdom. And that brought them into contact, into opposition with the kingdoms of the world and the rebels against King Jesus. My question then, I think, for us and what we ought to meditate on in light of this text is do we live life differently enough from the world to bring that kind of persecution on ourselves? Do we proclaim and embody the kingdom of heaven in such a way that conflict with the kingdom of the world is unavoidable? Is us, our failure to do that why we don't experience this kind of persecution. It is very easy in our context to live just like the world. It is very easy to live in a way that is not necessarily inherently wrong, but in a way that there is no distinction between us and those around us. Does the fact that you know Christ make any difference in the way that you live? If it does not, then you are in danger of not enduring as Jesus is going to call his disciples to do. I can't tell you what this looks like in your own life. But I can tell you what Peter said it looked like in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, he says this. Peter is talking constantly about suffering and about being an elect exile in the midst of a world that hates the kingdom of heaven. And he says this in 1 Peter 4, verses uh, 3 and 4. For the time is past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They're surprised when you do not join them, and they malign you. Now, this is not just talking about those things that Peter lists and what you ought not to do. This is talking about a life that is lived in contrast. Not because you're just trying to be different. Not because you're just trying to pick a fight or, or be oppositional or those kind of things, right? Jesus calls his disciples to be wise as serpents. But this is a life that is lived in contrast in such a way that the world is surprised and maligns you because of it. Because they hate what they see. They hate reflected that this is not the way we ought to live. This is not in accordance with the kingdom of heaven. And so, friends, think about that with me. I encourage you to meditate on it more this week. How do I live and is it different? The core of what Jesus is trying to say, I believe, here is a call to not be surprised. Do not be surprised. You will be harassed. But there is great hope. You are not like 
the sheep that are harassed and helpless and without a shepherd. There is great hope. Though you will be harassed, you are no longer helpless. Therefore, you ought not to be afraid. Notice Jesus' goal here is to encourage his disciples. Notice how much he talks about being afraid. Verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Verse 26, so have no fear of them. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body. Verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 21 should sound scary to us, right? Family members delivering over their own kin to death. If we take that seriously, it should frighten us. But Jesus tells us we need not fear. Not not that we're not facing scary things, but that we do not need to be afraid. And he gives us great hope. He shows, first of all, to his disciples and to us, do not be afraid because you are sent by the king. Right In verse 16, what do we see right off the bat? It seems so obvious, like, do we even need to mention it? But I think we do. Behold, I am sending you. I am sending you. That is so important. Not you are going and you got yourself into a big jam. Behold, I am sending you. You do not need to be afraid because you are sent by the king. You do not need to be afraid further because you are empowered by the king. What does he talk about in verses 19 and 20? When you're before these kings, when you're giving this testimony, do not be afraid. Why? Why ought you not to be anxious? Because he says, what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. He is encouraging his disciples that the spirit will speak through them. And he even sends his spirit to dwell in them, to empower them for mission, right? Acts, the whole book of Acts is predicated on Acts 118, that they will receive power from on high to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is true for every single one of us, that as we have been sent, we have been empowered by his spirit, both in what to say, in how to be wise, in how to endure. Do not be afraid because you do not go alone. You are empowered by the king. Not only that, You are sent by the king. You are empowered by the king. But do not be afraid because you are united to the king. Friends, this is one of the greatest promises of the gospel. Our union with Christ. Not only is Jesus a king who sits outside of us and apart from us, but in his sovereign goodness, he has united us to him. So much so that he can say the reason that you suffer is because you're in a new household. Notice verse 25, right? Verse 25, he says, If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Why do you experience persecution when you go for the sake of the name? Because you're part of a new household. You are identified with Christ. What they do to you, they do to Christ. Furthermore, in verse 40, how they receive you, they receive Christ. Verse 40, whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Your union with the king is so strong that it is comparative 
to the union that Jesus has with the Father. Which it doesn't get any stronger than that. Right? The Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally three persons in one God, united. And we, by the power of the Spirit, are brought into union with Christ. So that we go and are not not abandoned by our shepherd, but our shepherd goes with us even in the fact that we are united with him. You are sent by the king. You are empowered by the king. You are united to the king. Do not fear. The king is in control and cares for you. We have that beautiful passage in verses 28 to 31, right? Where, we're ta- where we hear about the father who knows the sparrows, watches over them. Not a single sparrow falls to the earth, and, but he knows and he's there. The father who numbers every hair on your head. And who cares for you. You are of more value, more precious to him than many sparrows. First Peter talks about us being bought by the precious blood of Jesus. The father gave his most precious possession to purchase you and I. He loves us and he will care for us. He is sovereignly in control of all things. From the falling of the sparrow to awe whether we live or die. So do not fear the one who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear God. The king is in control and cares for you. And he shows us in verse 34 that this kind of persecution, this kind of opposition is actually part of the plan. Right? Jesus says in verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace But a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This might seem strange to us, but Jesus says he came to bring a sword and set family members against each other, not because he's anti family, but because he is proclaiming a kingdom and he knows that there are family members, the closest, tightest units much more strongly connected than any of us to our family today was family in Judea. He knows that this unit will provide strong temptation to continue to reject the Messiah and embrace the gods of their parents. Whether that's Yahweh in the case of a Jewish family or whether that's the pagan gods of Rome in the case of a Gentile family. He says, I have come to bring the sword A sword of judgment, a sword that divides between those who will worship the true and living God and those who will worship false gods. This is part of the plan and it's going to lead to persecution, which is actually an opportunity for witness. We see this throughout the New Testament. Think of Acts 8 for a second. God's people are supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. By Acts 8... After Jesus had risen, the Spirit had come. Where are God's people? They're still in Jerusalem. They're they're in a holy huddle, waiting, not sure what to do. And what does God do? He brings along Paul to come and drag them into prison, to, to persecute them, and that drives them out from Jerusalem. And then what happens? The gospel comes to Samaria. Why? Not because they said, you know, there's people in Samaria that are lost that need to hear the gospel. But because persecution came to Jerusalem. That was God's church planting plan. It drove out the people from Jerusalem into Samaria, 
and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And then what does God do in Acts 9? Jesus comes, says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Strikes him blind. Turns him from a murderer into a missionary. This is what God does. This is part of his plan. We need not fear because our father, the sovereign God of the universe, is in control and cares for us. And Jesus tells his disciples, do not fear because of this. Do not fear, furthermore, because the king will consummate his kingdom. He promises his disciples that there is a sea change going on. What you hear whispered, what I've taught you, shout it from the rooftops. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. All things are going to come to fruition. We are encouraged to believe this in the New Testament, just like we read in our call to confession and our assurance of pardon, right? In Philippians 2, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We have a promise that God will consummate his kingdom. And so we need not fear. Jesus calls his disciples to be realistic about suffering and to be realistic about hope. And this is what we must be too. There's an excellent book on anxiety and particularly on the fear of man by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. And I think the title really well illustrates what our main challenge is and what Jesus is trying to help these disciples through. We are fearful when the present physical realities of this world loom large in our vision and the cosmic promises of King Jesus are really tiny. We fear... When something right in front of us that is frightening is huge and the promises of God are small. And so we are called by Jesus to remember that we need not be afraid because we are not helpless. Though we are harassed, we are not helpless. Because these promises that you are sent by the king and empowered and united to him, that he is sovereign over everything and cares for you. And is consummating his kingdom. These are huge. And they ought. To encourage us. Just like the disciples. Jesus says. You will be harassed. Do not be surprised. You are no longer helpless. Do not be afraid. And he calls his disciples. Then in light of this. To endure. Therefore you can and must. Endure. He says don't give up. Right? We see that primarily in verse 22. He says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Or look at verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Or look at verse 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, Jesus is showing his disciples here and showing us that we must endure. There's a call to endurance. Giving up is possible. Now please hear me. We believe 
that the Bible teaches very clearly in the perseverance of the saints. That by the Spirit of God at work in His people, His people will indeed persevere unto salvation. And we also believe, and the Bible clearly teaches, that as a saint, you must persevere. Those things can feel in contradiction to us, and we have a hard time holding those together. But the Bible teaches both. Jesus says there will be those who did mighty works in his name, right? In Matthew 7, we looked at a few weeks ago, that he says, away from me, I never knew you. That there are those who do not acknowledge him before men that he will not acknowledge before his father. He's not telling the disciples you need to endure because they don't know that. He's not, he's not telling his disciples that uh, just as a, as, a, as a blanket statement to say like, you must endure, but you will anyway, so don't worry about it. Right? Philippians, uh, Philippians 3 holds this together well when we see the call in light of God who both wills and works in us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? God works in us and we're called to work. Jesus gives his disciples everything they need to endure and then calls them to endure. That's what we're called to do. You must endure. You must persevere. But not only that, you can. Jesus in this text gives us what we need to endure. He tells us both what endurance looks like and how to endure. When he says in verse 16, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Be led with wisdom and yet prove yourself blameless like peter talks about when they persecute you don't let it be because you're just a jerk let it be for the name of christ be wise be innocent proclaim faithfully your witness verse 27 jesus says what i tell you in the dark say in the light what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops we persevere we endure with faithful witness We endure, verse 28, by not fearing those who can kill the body, but fearing the one who can cast body and soul into hell. Not fearing man, but fearing God. We persevere by loving Christ above all else. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Not because Jesus is telling us to abandon the commands in the the law to honor your father and mother or to love your children. But because if you do more than him, you will not be able to withstand this kind of pressure that divides families. Love Christ above all else. Be willing to die to yourself. Verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is before Jesus himself took up the cross. But the disciples saw people take up crosses all the time. And they knew that to just take that beam on your back and start walking to where you were going to be crucified means you're already dead. Dead man walking. Be willing to die to yourself. Verse 39, be willing to lose everything for the sake of gaining Christ. I mean, that's what he means when he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's an entire life orientation around the person and work of Jesus. This is how we endure. Jesus says, do not give up. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I want to close this morning by looking at 
verse 1 of chapter 11. It might seem strange to look at this verse as, as the kind of the peak point to look at. Listen to this again. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. What was Jesus doing? He was sending his disciples out on mission. What does he do after he does that? He goes out on mission with them. He goes out on mission with them. The major difference between those, those lost sheep of Israel. They were harassed and they were helpless. Why? Because their shepherds had abandoned them. And here, what do we see Jesus doing? Not abandoning his disciples. Not saying, go, good luck. Come back, let me know how it goes. He goes with them. He goes with them. This is one of the precious promises that ends the gospel of Matthew, right? After Jesus gives the great commission, sending us all out on mission, what does he say? Behold, I am with you always. I am with you. A shepherd who does not abandon his people. Friends, we will be harassed, but we are not helpless because we have a chief shepherd who does not abandon us. Has not, will not, never abandon you or me or anyone that is in his flock. So let us not be surprised when we share in his suffering because we go with him. Let us not be afraid but cling to his presence and his promises. And let us not give up but endure with confidence that he is with us. And that he will one day bring the fullness of of his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. You never abandon your people. Thank you for the precious promise that you will be with us even to the end of the age. Jesus, the things we face as we seek to be faithful to you and the mission you've given us are scary. I pray that you would help us. Would you loom large in our sight? Would your presence be felt among us day in and day out? Would you strengthen our little faith, showing us the same kind of patience that you showed your disciples? who you constantly said, you of little faith. I thank you, though, Jesus, that as you went with them, their faith was strengthened and grown. I pray that the same would be true for us. Would you help us be faithful, even unto death, if that's what you would call us to do? Would you help us endure to the end? We pray. Amen.